tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract him to us. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living, for the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, And with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life. And be satisfied by his knowledge of my righteousness. uh, Sorry, by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Thanks, Debbie. Some very familiar words in Isaiah 53, and I'd I'd like us to, firstly, to sing those words, and secondly, to just spend some time uh, thinking about what they mean. So let's sing together from Praise the Lord, number 43. He was pierced for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities, and to bring us peace, he was punished. 43 from Praise the Lord. If you ask me why I believed in God, and why I thought the Bible was a book worth reading, it's... it's, It's not because in my vast uh, intellectual studies I've come up with a completely foolproof, logical proof that God exists. It's because of passages like Isaiah 53. I don't believe 
because the Bible is a perfectly logical document. It, it, it isn't a logical document, at least according to human logic. Not according to any logic that I understand. I don't believe because the Bible tells us nice stories about nice people doing nice things. Because there are many parts of the Bible that are distinctly not nice. I don't believe because the Bible gives us a coherent vision of the world that confounds and disproves modern science. And it's deeper and more wonderful because of that. I believe in God because of passages like Isaiah 53. I believe because passages like Isaiah 53 are still in our Bible, despite thousands of years of opportunities to edit them out because they're not very they're not uh, the sort of thing that we want to hear Isaiah 53 shows us without embarrassment or excuse the Lord's servant God's servant the, the son of God the Messiah in a voluntary position of weakness And he's in that voluntary position of weakness for you and for me. Historical documents tend not to be very uh, impartial. Uh, And they tend to be be affected by the, the powerful people in whose time they were written. So descriptions of historical figures are often made more flattering uh, when they're written uh, by themselves or, or, or less flattering when they're written by their opponents. Scriptures pass through times when Christianity was outlawed. It's also passed through times when it became the state religion of the most powerful empire on earth. It passed through an age when Christ was appropriated for political ends and yet we still have pictures of Christ as a humble servant we still have pictures of Christ as the suffering the solitary servant the decidedly unwarlike the decidedly non-political the loser for those of you listening on the podcast I just did those air inverted commas when I said loser definitely not a role model for for wannabe leaders the picture of Jesus wasn't changed to make it more palatable that's why I believe in scripture that's why I believe in God the image presented here and and by implication applied to Christ is not one that you would you'd, you'd invent it's not one you'd invent if you wanted to have followers it's not a role model you'd want to publicize 
if you wanted to compete with with other religions. If you were trying to set up a religion, you wouldn't come up with something uh, that relied on a person who did this. If you wanted to to compete with with the with the uh, with the prevailing religions of the day, you'd want to have a more powerful god than Zeus. Uh, a, a more a more attractive messenger than Apollo, and yet we see the powerful God of the universe, the Creator, sending His Son to die and to suffer. And it's hardly surprising then that it starts in. Verse 1 of chapter 53. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? It starts off by saying, well, you know, it's nobody believes. You know, there are few believers. And, and that, that verse is, is actually applied by John to Jesus' uh, ministry, where, where John says, People didn't believe. And that fulfilled this prophecy in Isaiah. John quotes it in relation to his ministry. Not during his suffering, but during the time when he performed lots of miracles. And where he taught in a captivating way, but still people didn't get it. But you can understand why people might not want, might, might not warm to the idea of, of leaving everything to follow a suffering servant. <coughs> you can understand why it might not be attractive. In verse, in verse 2, Isaiah says that Jesus, or that the, the suffering servant, I'm, I'm taking it as read that, that this prophecy of Isaiah speaks of Jesus and is a description of Jesus, even though it was written hundreds of years before he was born. He didn't look anything special. He had no beauty or majesty that we should be attracted, that we should desire him. We, we read about other people in scripture who, who were described as being physically attractive and who had this sort of majesty, this kind of leadership quality. People like, um, like David, who you could see that there was something special about him. He was a, a very uh, attractive, physically attractive person who you would say, yeah, I could, I could follow someone like that. And, uh, and Saul was... Um, Saul was a uh, head and shoulders above, above everyone else. He was a, a, a good physical specimen. But it says that Jesus wasn't, there was nothing, there was no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. We're, we're brought up on, um, uh, on images of Jesus that are of, you know, the, the very tall, handsome uh, man with perfectly coiffured hair and uh, a long flowing beard 
for, for those of you of sort of my kind of age, I mean, the image that I have of Jesus is Robert Powell in Zeffirelli's Jesus of Nazareth. You know, a very handsome man with piercing blue eyes and a very physically uh, attractive person. Scripture tells us that Jesus wasn't like that. People didn't follow him because he was an attractive, physically captivating person. Anyone who followed him, followed him for his teaching and his personality. For the charisma of his presence. The Gospels don't have any physical description of Jesus at all. You you struggle to find anything which gives you any hint of what he looked like or, or anything about him. But there are plenty of descriptions of his character and of his actions. What he said to people, how he treated people, the compassion and the love that he shared. He was like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. So during Jesus' ministry, there were were people who followed him sort of in a sort of casual kind of way. Um, In the way that you you might, uh, you know, follow... uh, You know, follow someone on Twitter. You know, it was that kind of... Yeah, it was the... First century version of that, you know, someone who, you know, interesting to see what they say. But actually, when it, when push came to shove, they were just not there. He had a dedicated team of disciples who, uh, who were, who were there. I mean, maybe they were like Facebook friends. I don't know. I'm getting a bit out of my depth now, but I'll stop it there. But yeah, they, they were the ones who actually were, were, were close to him and he was close to them and he had a sort of special relationship with. In good times. But in bad times the crowds turned against him and when it, the going got really tough, the disciples scattered. When they realised that Jesus wasn't up for a fight when Jesus wasn't going to fight his way out of the opposition he had, and that actually he was serious when he talked about going up to Jerusalem and dying. He was serious when he talked about being uh, put to death and being raised to life, and they weren't that confident. So they left him. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. People don't like losers. I don't know whether you saw the picture in the the paper this week of uh, the England football team returning in triumph. And there was a, uh, a picture of the one supporter that turned out to welcome them back. I'm sure that was just a... That, that was a bit of a spin put on that particular photo of a lonely um, uh, person sort of just watching. But we don't like losers. There's a, another famous story of a brand of cigarettes years ago in the days when you used to be able to advertise cigarettes. 
the Strand cigarette. And th- their advertising slogan, that they, they came up with this great advertising slogan, you're never alone with a Strand. And there was a picture of a man in a, in a, in a, in a dark you know, an evening, standing by a river with a cigarette, all alone. Sales tanked, because people didn't think of the slogan, you're never alone with a strand. People saw the picture and thought, strand, alone. Sales tanked, and, and people, people don't like losers. People don't like uh, that kind of loneliness. People don't like losers, and Jesus seemed like a loser when he was left alone, when he was arrested, when he was humiliated. That was then, but how do we hide our faces from him? How, how, how do we... Um, how do we treat have our how is our relationship with him do we uh, come to him and acknowledge him as our savior in good times do we uh, do we enjoy worshiping together but then perhaps when we go away he takes second place perhaps when we go away we hide our faces from him. Are we a bit like the people that Isaiah spoke about earlier in chapter 29 where he said, these people come to me with their mouths and honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. The disciples honoured Jesus with their lips by promising to stay with him and to share his sufferings. But, but when push came almost literally to shove, they were gone. We make a lot of promises when we're here. When we take the bread and the wine, we we pray. I don't know what we say. We pray silently. We pray in our own hearts. But I know that my track record for delivering on my promises to him is pretty pitiful and yet it was for us that he went through what he did despite our indifference I, I don't understand the theology of atonement when, when we try to sit down and analyse um, the death of Christ and and what it how it works if you like it's in danger of becoming a a bit of an intellectual exercise I'm not saying that that we shouldn't try to understand uh, our our saviour and what our saviour has done for us there's value in doing it but only if we don't lose sight of the love of the gift of the inherent mystery of the fact that Almighty God gave his Son to die for us. I I, I don't believe that there's a way of making it logical or fair. I don't believe that there's a way of making it sensible or reasonable. 
the only way is to see it in the context of a loving father who was prepared to do what it takes to bring us to him. The only correct attitude to the fact that he was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities is to, is to respond with awe, humility, gratitude, and, and security and confidence. Security and confidence that if he made that sacrifice for us, then he must be committed to us and, and won't let us go and won't be put off by the fact that we're indifferent and unreliable. He must really love us. Guilt or obligation isn't a good response, but confidence and love and desire to be like Jesus are much better. I'm not saying that that we shouldn't seek to understand God's mind more fully. And of course, we should get to grips with what Scripture really says. But if that undertaking, understanding, takes us away, or clouds, or becomes more important than John's summary of the atonement, we've missed the point. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That's the answer about what the atonement's about. He took up our pain and bore our suffering. Each of us comes with a a different sort of pain physical pain emotional pain loss regret surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering and he did it with grace and dignity, despite the indignity of the disgusting process that he went through. The Romans didn't use crucifixion as a way of killing people. They used it as a way of humiliating people, of scaring people. They wanted to break the spirit of the executed and to control the will of the spectator. I don't want to dwell on the physical suffering of Christ, but Isaiah 53 paints a picture of one whose spirit wasn't broken. Who made, of someone who was physically abused and humiliated, but who maintained his dignity and his humanity. He didn't rage against injustice. even though it was unjust, but he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. He didn't protest his innocence, even though he was innocent. 
He didn't engage with Herod's attempt to be entertained by Jesus. On the cross, he used his time to comfort the ones who were close to him, who were courageous enough to, to come to the cross. And he encourages men who were dying for what they'd done and who, by the law of the land at the time, deserved to die. His time on the cross was not taken up with self-pity or anger, but was dignified. We can talk a lot about the crucifixion of Jesus and his death. But we've got to remember that possibly the most important thing was that he didn't stay dead. The reason we're here today is not because we remember a man who died an unjust death. We, we don't remember, we don't, we don't just sort of memorialise this person who is a historical figure but we remember a man who died an unjust death for us and who didn't stay dead but is alive now. He was delivered over to death for our sins and raised to life for our justification. We don't just remember suffering. We don't just remember indignity and a death that happened thousands of years ago. We rejoice in a life restored. We rejoice in a life transformed. We rejoice in resurrection to glory and we rejoice that that has implications for each one of us now and that's as relevant to us today as to the disciples who saw the risen Christ on Sunday morning we rejoice in Jesus we rejoice in what he did and what he continues to do we're going to break bread in a moment but before we do we're going to sing another song from praise the Lord number 138 as water to the thirsty We're going to take bread and we're going to drink wine. We're going to remember the life, the death and the resurrection of our Lord. We, we take bread and wine not, if you like, because it's is a, a magic thing that, that does something special to us. But we take it as a symbol of the fact that we have committed ourselves to him. And it's a symbol that we want to share in all that he is and all that he has promised that he will be. We don't take it lightly 
but we take it as a symbol of our commitment to him. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. Ewald is going to come and offer our thanks for the bread. Our dear Father in heaven, hallowed be your high and your holy name. Thank you so much for having brought us to your house of peace, away from the troubled world, to this table, to our sanctuary. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for loving us so much. You know that each one here who has traveled from near and far loves you very much indeed. You and your son. Thank you for this bread, which symbolizes your dear son's body. Please help each one of us to eat it in a worthy manner. In the name of Jesus. Amen. The Lord Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup. Lord Jesus, I've no idea how you allowed yourself to be crucified. I've no idea how long before that you made the choice every moment of every day to follow our Father. I've no idea how you had the presence of mind, the strength of conviction and the love for your Father that you let nothing else get in the way. But Jesus, I'm so thankful that you did. As Martin said, you're not like any normal role model. But you are such a powerful one. Jesus, I thank you for everything you've done for me, for us. But I thank you for the fact that although during your life, yeah, the world might have seen you as a loser. Thank you for winning. And thank you for giving us that choice to follow you that choice to commit ourselves to you and that choice and chance to win a race that matters thank you for this wine Amen this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me
For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We struggle, don't we, to always hear the voice of God. When we go from here, here it's very easy to hear the, the, the voice of God, the word of God. We hear it read and there's quietness and we're talking about God. But when we go out from here often, it's difficult to, to concentrate. It's difficult to, um, to listen. There are so many other things going on. There are things that are not important that scream in our face. And yet the word of God doesn't clamour for attention but is more like Elijah's gentle whisper that we need to listen for I remember I was uh, part, part of my work I was at a, a fuel terminal a place where they have great big storage tanks that have pipelines that, that fill these tanks with millions of litres of petrol and they had a problem with the alarms on these, these vessels. That they, they didn't have the right priorities. So when, the, uh, when someone arrived at the gate with a delivery, there was an enormous alarm that went off saying, there's somebody at the gate, there's somebody at the gate, there's somebody at the gate. Well, it didn't actually say that, but it just sort of rang a bell. And there was another alarm that was to say... Actually, the tank is overfilling and uh, it's going to be squirting out petrol at hundreds of uh, metres cubes per hour if you don't do something. And that was doing something like, I'm just about to overfill. I'm just about to overfill. I'm just about to overfill. Alarm prioritisation is very important in process safety. And prioritising... What we listen to is also important. There are so many things, aren't there, that we can be distracted by in our week. So many voices that are trying to tell us that there's a, a message waiting for us on Facebook or there's a, somebody has liked our posting or there's a Twitter announcement or there's, um, you know, look at the news website, look at this, look at that, something else, TV. And sometimes, I don't know about you, but my head feels as though it will explode, that there's so much that is coming at us. And that small, still voice is still there. But the small, still voice is waiting for us to respond. So this week, let's listen. Let's try to, to make a special effort 
to concentrate on him, to listen for the one who doesn't, who doesn't shout and scream and demand our attention. We're going to finish with a, a song of worship. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. And after that, Charlie's going to close in prayer. Father God, thank you for drawing us together this morning from our different lives to be here together, to spend time with you and to spend time with our Lord. Father, you gave Isaiah that vision so many centuries ago of Jesus, humbled, suffering and giving everything out of love for us. And Lord Martin has shown us how that image has remained unchanged, never diminishing its power and moving people throughout history. Lord, I was reminded of a picture I saw on the TV this week of Rio de Janeiro at night. There was blackout, nothing was illuminated, not a house, not a street. The only light came from up on the mountainside, from Christ the Redeemer, the only light of the world. Lord, help us to reflect that light this week. In his name we ask for strength. Amen.